like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church this morning. We've already done that, but thank you again for coming and worshiping with us. Thanks to the kids for coming in and worshiping with us and singing with us. It's always refreshing to see them here with us, and maybe they can teach us a thing or two about what it means to truly worship the God who created everything. We're also thankful for all the change that people donated that will now be going directly to missionaries. We're no longer going to be putting that in our general budget and doing it that way. We're going to be sending change that we get in these cans to missionaries who we support, specifically the ones that come and speak that day. While we don't have one coming and speaking that day, we do have another missions opportunity that we're going to contribute that change to, and so we're very thankful that you've taken it upon yourself to save that up and support the work that a lot of people are doing around the state of Indiana, around the country, and around the world uh, for the sake of God's kingdom. Now, we're in week two of a three-week series looking at spiritual disciplines. We've been looking at the discipline of study last week. And as we talked about last week, the idea of studying or practicing disciplines may not exactly sound fun. Disciplines, that sounds like something we do because we have to. That sounds like it's something that we do because we have to force ourselves to do it. It sounds like something that involves punishment. So that isn't exactly appealing. Or then maybe we hear spiritual disciplines and we picture some crazy guy living out in the woods or living out in a cave wearing a robe. And we think, you know what, that's great that those hyper-spiritual people who live in monasteries or whatever it is that they do, that's great that they can practice those disciplines. That's great that they can devote their lives to study and fasting and prayer, but that's just not how my life works. I have a job. I have kids. I'm a full-time student. I have other things that are pulling me in a lot of different directions. And so this idea of spiritual disciplines just really doesn't have a place in my life. Well, what we're talking about these few weeks are disciplines that I believe do have a place in our lives. They had a life, a place in the lives of those we read about in Scripture. They had a place in the lives of those Christians who have come before us. And I believe that we would do well to allow them to have a place in our lives as well. Now, when we talked about study, we talked about the value of reading God's Word, of wrestling with God's Word, of asking questions of it, reflecting upon it. And how that can truly shape us and truly change us and help us become different people, people who more reflect the God who saved us. We study scripture because it is God's primary means of communicating with us. There are other means that God communicates with us. Don't get me wrong. That's not the only means, but it's the primary means. If you want to hear what God has to say to you, open his word. Scripture has the power to transform us to purify us, to prune us, as we talked earlier, changing our hearts and changing our minds. Scripture has the power to bring us more in touch with God's grace. As we read this book, we get a more clear picture of just how much God has done for us, just how much his grace abounds, just how much we don't deserve to be called sons and daughters of God, and yet we are through the blood of Jesus through his cross and through his resurrection. It brings us more in touch with God's grace. It helps us better know the truth, that we might share it with those who don't know it, that we might defend it against those who might attack it, all for God's glory. But then we also talked about why we shouldn't study. There are bad reasons to practice that discipline of studying Scripture. 
We don't do it to earn God's approval. Sometimes we grow up in churches or we grow up with this mentality where I have to study scripture X amount of times per day or else I'm going to be in God's doghouse. But that is not what it's about. It's not about proving ourselves to God. It's not about meeting some quota of how many verses we read that day so that we can convince God to love us more. That is not why we study. We also don't study to gain head knowledge. You can study scripture all you want. You can know it from cover to cover. You can spend hours a day in the word of God. But as Jesus talks about, and we talked last week, if you're not loving your neighbor, all that study is pointless. Sure, maybe you can answer all the questions in your small group. Maybe you can impress people with how much you know about the Bible. But if you're not called to love God and love your neighbor more, then all that study, all that reflection, all that time, it really didn't bear any fruit. We then recommended a few resources for those of you who are looking to start this discipline of study. Maybe you're one of those people and you look at the Word of God and you think, you know what, I'm just inadequate to read this. I don't understand half of it. I don't know what some of the words mean. I've never done this before. I didn't grow up in the church. We have resources available or resources that we recommend to you. Maybe you're someone who just don't even know where to start when it comes to reading the Bible. This is such a big book. Where do I start? Do I start at the very beginning? Do I start in the New Testament? Well, we have recommended resources for that, too. And if you would like to be reminded of those resources, we posted those on our church Facebook page. We posted those on our church website. Make sure that you look to those, and we would be happy to help in any way that we can to make sure that you get a hold of those if you really want to use them. Now, that brings us to where we are in our second discipline. Study is done. Study is taken care of. But here's the thing. We get to discipline number two, and that discipline is fasting. Now, study is one of those disciplines that most Christians can agree on. We say, you know what? Yeah, study is important. If I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, it's pretty important that I read God's word. It's pretty important that I open God's word on a regular basis. We all probably agree with that. But then we get to this discipline, and we think, you know what? That's kind of weird. That kind of makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. That's a little bit awkward. That's a little bit different. Why would I do that? There's lots of different reasons that fasting makes us uncomfortable, that fasting seems a little bit awkward, that fasting seems a little bit unpractical. And some of those reasons, probably some are more legitimate than others. But what we're going to do today is we're going to take a bird's eye view of fasting. We're going to look at the idea of fasting, what it is, when it's done, who has done it, and why in the world would we, as followers of Jesus today, ever want to do it. Now, you may leave here thinking, you know what, I'm not going to subject myself to that. It's not practical for me. I am never going to do this. But at the very least, I hope that you will leave more informed And you'll leave more convinced that fasting truly is an important part of Scripture. It's all over the place. And that's what we're going to see today. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me first to Daniel chapter 10. That first thing we're going to address is what exactly is fasting? We need to set that out from the very get-go. 
We're going to start looking at that in Daniel chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one underneath our chairs. Feel free to grab one from the welcome desk if you don't own a Bible. It would be kind of hypocritical of us one week to say that we want you to study Scripture, and then if you don't have a copy of the Bible, say, well, sorry, you're out of luck. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk and take that home with you. But before we start reading in Daniel chapter 10, I'm going to pray. So if you would, please pray with me. Father, we are grateful. We are humbled that we get to be in your presence, that we have this privilege of coming together and worshiping you. And God, I pray that as we broach topics within your word and broach topics within the idea of discipleship, that maybe we don't think about a whole lot. Maybe we have never really practiced. Maybe we think it's kind of weird and kind of different and we wonder what the value of all this is. I pray that we will learn that you speak to us in ways that sometimes we don't expect. And God, maybe fasting is one of those ways. And I pray that as we look to your word for this idea of fasting, as we examine what it's about and who's done it and why it might be done, I pray that we'll realize that this is not just about building up our own spirituality. This is not just about becoming more holy people through our own will and our, through our own effort, but rather everything in your word, even this topic, it all comes back to your son, Jesus. God, we're grateful for him. That's why we're here today. And I pray that we can keep that in mind as we continue worshiping and continue reading your word this morning. God, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, Daniel chapter 10. First question, what is fasting? Well, fasting typically is the voluntary giving up of food for a period of time. Some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, I kind of knew that already. But here's the thing. There are a few examples of where fasting maybe isn't that simple. There are other types of fasts. Let's look at one of those in Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Daniel writes, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all. For the full three weeks, we encounter Daniel as a guy who ends up in Babylon, a faithful Israelite, one who seeks to worship the one true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But Daniel is exiled away from his homeland. He and his friends are taken from their homeland. Their names are changed. Essentially, their culture is annihilated. The Babylonians are seeking to make them truly forget who they are, to make them realize that they are Babylonians now. And that God that they worship back in the day, they should just let that go, because that's not what Babylonians do. So Daniel and his friends are wrestling with this pressure of trying to stay faithful to the one true God of Israel, even though they face all this pressure around them of giving in to the Babylonian pressure. And becoming more like the people who were in charge. And Daniel sees a horrifying vision. A vision that scares him to death. And his response is fasting. He doesn't fast from food completely. He fasts from meat. He fasts from delicacies. He fasts from wine. And he does this because he is mourning the vision that he has seen. He is so overwhelmed by what he just saw, of what is coming, his only response is mourning and fasting. 
He doesn't give up food completely. He gives up wine, meat, delicacies, but it's a fast nonetheless. Now, another example of a somewhat atypical fast is seen in Exodus chapter 34, verses 27 and 28. We read in that passage, The Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now Moses has already received the Ten Commandments from God once, earlier in the book of Exodus. He went down off of Mount Sinai and he found that after just a little bit of time being away from God's people who were just freed from slavery, they've already abandoned God. They've already started worshiping a false god, this golden calf that they made. Moses is angry. He throws the tablets down. He breaks the tablets, these Ten Commandments, and then he has to go back up to Mount Sinai to get the tablets again. And as he's getting these tablets, we read that he fasted from food and water for 40 days. Now, if you know anything about the human body, the human body cannot last 40 days without water. Food? Eh, that's doable. Water? No, not doable. So what we see in this fast, this atypical fast, is that clearly God sustained Moses in some really miraculous way that you and I don't understand, that doctors would not understand. And yet Moses was fasting as he's given the law from God. He sustained him. However, that doesn't mean that we should expect to fast without water for 40 days and God will sustain us. That probably would not end well, so I would not recommend that. So while there are other examples of types of fast that aren't just getting rid of food, the typical one is getting rid of food for a voluntary period of time. Now, those are just two examples of people who have fasted in some way, shape, or form, but there are lots of other examples. Now we transition to the question of who fasted? Who all has done this? Well, Moses already talked about him. King David was known for his fasting. Elijah the prophet, a prophet during an incredibly tumultuous time in the history of God's people. Elijah fasted. Esther, the queen of Persia, fasted when times really got dire for her. We'll see that in just a second. Already mentioned Daniel. Anna, one of the first people who worshipped Jesus after he is born. As Joseph and Mary bring him to the temple, Anna worships and she is known for fasting. Paul fasts, and of course, Jesus fasts. There are lots of biblical examples of people who fasted, but there are also non-biblical examples of people who fasted. Just a few examples of that, Martin Luther, John Calvin, two of the most influential church leaders in the history of the church, they were known for fasting. John Knox, he's a contemporary of Martin Luther and John Calvin. He was around the same time that they were. He was known for his fasting. John Wesley, who was a British preacher who helped start the Methodist movement in America, he was known for his fasting. Jonathan Edwards, arguably the greatest American preacher who has ever lived, was known for his fasting. Charles Finney, another American preacher, was known for his fasting. He was also known for fighting against slavery and fighting for equal education for women and African Americans. Charles Spurgeon, 
arguably the greatest preacher who has ever lived from wherever you go. He was known for his fasting. Now, if you're hearing that list, as I looked at that list, I realize that it might come across that you can only fast if your name is John or Charles. But you don't have to be named John or Charles if you want to fast. It can still be very valuable for you. And these people clearly found it valuable. And God used these peoples in a way that truly changed the world. And they fasted. Maybe that's not the primary reason that God used them. God could have had other reasons that he used them. It's not just because they chose to fast. However, it's worth noting. There are lots of influential, God-honoring people who have seen the value in fasting. So we know what it is. Giving up food for a period of time voluntarily. We know who's done it. There are lots of people who have done it. But when would fasting be done? Are there certain times where fasting might be more appropriate than others? Well, there are. Times of mourning were particularly common for fasting. We already talked about Daniel as he's mourning the vision that he saw. He chose to fast. David fasted during times of mourning. Look at Psalm 35, verses 11 through 14. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. So David is facing a difficult set of circumstances at the moment. Enemies are rising up all around him. People that he once considered friends. People that he fasted for. People that he mourned for when they were sick. And they aren't exactly returning him the favor. But as David sees these people who are sick, these people that he cares about, what does he do? He prays. He grieves. He makes petition to God for their health. And he fasts. Mourning is particularly appropriate when it comes to fasting. Another example would be times of emergency. We already mentioned Esther. Look at Esther chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. If you know anything about the story of Esther, Esther was an unlikely queen. She was Jewish, but not a lot of people knew that about her when she was in Persia. And her people are facing potential genocide. And she's one of the only people, arguably the only person who could possibly change that fate for her entire people group. We read in verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther is prepared to stick her neck out there, to risk her life, to save the lives of her people. And what does she do? She fasts. She requests that other people fast during this time of emergency. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat, one of the few good kings in Israel at that time, when he hears that a massive group of enemies is coming to attack God's people, he declares a fast. And God's people are spared. Times of emergency are particularly appropriate when it comes to fasting. 
Another time where it's very appropriate are times of repentance. We read in Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23 that on the Day of Atonement, the time when priests would come and offer sacrifices for the sins of the entire nation, everyone would repent for the sins of the nation. A time of fasting was practiced. Another set of circumstances where fasting was done, important decisions. Look at Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. We read in that passage, when they, Paul and Barnabas, that's the they, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul and Barnabas are given this weighty responsibility, this big, important task of appointing elders in this church. This decision and who they appoint, that could determine this church's success or this church's devotion to God for the next few years, the next few decades, potentially. And they don't take that responsibility lightly. So as they make these decisions, as they appoint these leaders, they devote themselves to prayer. They fast. This is a big deal. And they clearly understand that. Finally, one more set of circumstances where fasting was often done. Times of preparation. We already talked about Moses and that miraculous fast without 40, 40 days without food and 40 days without water as he was preparing to bring the law to God's people again the second time. As he's preparing for that, he fasts. But then we come to arguably the most famous example of fasting in all of Scripture. It's in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1 we read, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. No kidding, Matthew, he was hungry. Jesus fasts 40 days and 40 nights, no food, as he prepares for this public ministry to begin. He has already been baptized. He's preparing to go out and call his disciples, the people who will follow him for the next several years, leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. And what does he do? He fasts. He is tempted by Satan, and he overcomes the temptation that Adam and Eve couldn't, that you and I don't. And fasting is a part of what he does in that preparation. There are lots of examples of times when it was appropriate to fast. But we now get to that one question that all of us are really thinking about, if we're here this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus. Do I have to do it? Do I have to fast? Well, here's the thing. I think that might be the wrong question to start out with. So for that, let's look at Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 14. We read this, one of the few times that Jesus directly addresses the idea of fasting. Verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, if you're one of those people who's thinking, You know what? You are never going to convince me to do this. I am not going to fast. You can talk about the Bible as much as you want. It's just not going to happen. You probably would like to stop right there because you're thinking, hey, look at that. John's disciples, the Pharisees, they all fasted way more than Jesus. Clearly, fasting is not a very high priority for Jesus and his followers. Well, it's not that clear cut. 
continue on to verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So, what do we have here? What do we make of this passage? We can assume that Jesus is referring to himself with this bridegroom imagery. His whole point is that when the wedding happens, there's celebration. When someone gets married, you don't mourn, you don't fast, you celebrate, you eat, you drink, you smile, you laugh, you dance, you do what you do at weddings. But then, when the bridegroom is taken away, then that's when it could be appropriate to fast. And Jesus says, when the bridegroom is taken away, then my disciples will fast. So if we put two and two together, if Jesus is the bridegroom and he is no longer physically with us. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is ruling and he is reigning and he is very much sovereign over the things that are happening over our world today. But he is not physically with us. He has been taken away in that sense. It says that when I am taken away, my followers will fast. What do you do with that? Well, here's the thing. It's not clear-cut on either side of the coin. And the truth is that in the New Testament, there is no explicit command that says that followers of Jesus in our day and age, right now, 2014, need to be fasting. It just isn't in there. You know, last week I had no problem standing up here and talking about how vital it is for the study of Scripture to be a regular part of our lives as followers of Jesus. I would not use that same word, vital, when it comes to fasting. But again, just because we don't technically have to do something as followers of Jesus doesn't mean that we shouldn't. So that brings up the question, if it's not an explicit command, why would I do it? What would it accomplish for me and my walk with Christ? What value could it have for me as a follower of Jesus right now? Well, we already talked about those times when fasting is done. Times of mourning, times of emergency, times of repentance, when you're facing important decisions, when you're preparing for a big, scary task. Well, as you look at all those circumstances, they all have one thing in common. And that's this. When you face those circumstances as a follower of Jesus, the one thing you need, more than anything, is utter dependence upon God. You think about times of mourning. Something tragic happens. You lose someone that you care about. There's a horrible event in your life that brings you to your knees with grief or with pain or with suffering. Or maybe it happens to a friend or a family member and you just don't know what to do. What else can you do as a follower of Jesus in that time except depend upon God? Times of emergency. Something completely unexpected happens. And you have no idea how to react. You have no idea what comes next. There is chaos and uncertainty and fear all around you. What else can you do in that time besides depend fully upon God? Those times of repentance. When you as a follower of Christ have been wrestling with some sin in your life and you think you finally got over it, you think you finally mastered it, and then all of a sudden that sin creeps back up. And you stand before a holy God and know that you have fallen short. What else can you do in that moment except fully depend upon God? 
fully depend upon his mercy and fully depend upon his grace and fully depend upon Jesus' blood that has washed you clean. All you can do is depend. And then as you face those important decisions, you have no idea what to do in the set of circumstances that you find yourself in. You feel like you're sitting on top of a bomb and you're in a movie and you're trying to decide what wire to cut and you're scared that if you cut the wrong wire then the whole thing is just going to blow up in your face and you're worried and you have no idea what could happen. What if I do this? What if I do that? What if I make the wrong decision? Well, what else can you do in that moment as a follower of Jesus besides depend upon God? That's what all these times have in common. They are times of dependence. They are times of throwing ourselves at the feet of God, basing all our hope on his mercy and on his grace. Let's look to Matthew chapter 4 one more time, back to that passage where Jesus is tempted as he prepares for ministry. Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you were the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. That'll fix your problem with fasting. You won't be hungry anymore if you command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When we fast, one thing that we realize is that food does not sustain us into eternity. Only God sustains us into eternity. Only Jesus is the true bread of life. Fasting is not about losing weight. It's not about getting rid of toxins. It's not about proving how holy you are. It's not about proving that you're super spiritual. It's not about having the attitude that Jesus addresses in Matthew 6, where people are just showing off with their fasting. It's about learning how much you and I truly depend upon God for everything. In our lives. Martin Luther said this. Martin Luther writes, It was not Christ's intention to reject or despise fasting. It was his intention to restore proper fasting. Proper fasting is that which reminds us that no matter how much food we have, no matter how much bread we have, no matter how much we eat here, no matter how healthy we are, eventually our bodies will weaken. Eventually, our bodies will break down, and eventually, we will die. And all that bread that we had here, all that food that we had here, all that dedication we had to our physical health and making sure we were never going hungry, that won't sustain us into eternity. Only depending on the one true bread of life will sustain us into eternity. And fasting teaches us that that is the bread that we depend upon. Not the bread that we have here, not the bread that we go and buy at the store, but the bread of life. So the question is, what's stopping us? Maybe you have a legitimate reason for not fasting. Maybe you have health concerns where that's just not really an option for you. Maybe you're pregnant. I remember in Batesville, we did a fast for our church and Olivia and I, we had to stay overnight at this fast, and Olivia was pregnant, so we had to keep Ritz crackers in my office. And we had to lock the office, that way kids in our youth group didn't go steal the Ritz crackers. There are legitimate reasons not to fast. Maybe you read scripture and you say, you know what, I get it. 
It's an important part of Scripture. Clearly, there is a lot of times in Scripture where fasting happens, but it's just not for me. There are other ways that I can discipline myself and learn to depend upon God more. And fasting isn't an explicit command, so you know what? I'm just going to not do this. Okay, that's perfectly understandable. However, if you're like me, and if you see the value of it in Scripture, you see the value of it throughout history, and you have the physical ability to do it, why don't we do it? We don't seem to have as much problem with other disciplines of study. We don't seem to have as much problem with those disciplines of even giving financially. But that discipline of fasting, that makes us a little bit more uncomfortable. Because maybe it requires more of us than we're used to. It's not that uncomfortable to cut a check and just watch it go away. We can get used to that. We can deal with that. But fasting makes us vulnerable. It takes away our comfort. Why don't we do it? I would encourage you to reconsider the role that fasting can play in your life as I reconsider the role that fasting can play in my life. One more quote from Charles Spurgeon, that prince of preachers I talked about earlier. He writes this, Our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle, the church that he was employed at, have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gate stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer to the central glory. Hear those words. Think about those words. Charles Spurgeon was not worried about how hungry he felt. He was not worried about how much he wanted to drive down to McDonald's. His main concern was that, you know what? I feel closer to God than I have ever felt before. And that probably is because Charles Spurgeon found himself depending more on the bread of life, more on Jesus, than he ever depended upon the bread that you and I have right now. We do not live by bread alone. There are times right now in our lives where fasting could be appropriate. There are people in this room who are facing times of mourning. There are people in this room who are facing emergencies and they have no idea what to do. There are people in this room who need to repent. There are people in this room who are facing important decisions and they have no idea what to do. There are people in this room who are facing all kinds of hardship. I pray that we will learn to depend upon God during those times, but also during every time. Man does not live by bread alone. And I pray that we will depend on the one true bread of life. That's what fasting teaches us to do. Let's pray. Father, we read passages like this and we're challenged and we're humbled. Maybe some of us are still defensive. But God, we throw ourselves at your feet. We throw ourselves at the feet of the bread of life. We throw ourselves at the foot of the cross. And God, I pray that if nothing else, we understand that fasting is a huge part of your word. That many who have come before us have found great value in it. But again, I pray that if we were to become a church that takes fasting seriously, if we were to become people that take fasting seriously, 
that we would do it not to lose weight, not to show off, not to prove how holy we are, but rather to truly learn to depend upon you at all times. God, ultimately, that's what our faith comes back to. We depend upon you for salvation. We depend upon you for grace. We depend upon you for mercy because we are not worthy of any of those things. God, we can only find those things in your son, Jesus, the bread of life. I pray that if there are people in this room who have not yet turned their life over to Christ, have not yet learned to depend upon you, I pray that they'll make that decision this morning. For those of us who already know you, God, we are still tempted to try and have things under our control, to try and depend upon our own skills and our own abilities and our own talents for all the different things that we face in this life, but nothing sustains us into eternity except for you. God, I pray that we will remember that at all times. God, we love you, we praise you, we honor you. We thank you for the bread of life, and we ask these things in his name. Amen. If you have not yet made that decision to follow Christ, we'd like you to do that this morning. We'll have elders standing at the sides of the room. Feel free to go and talk to them. Ask questions. Have something you need to pray about. They'll be happy to do that with you, too. We hope you'll take advantage of that.